Well, good morning, Good Shepherd. Uh, this is Palm Sunday, and we're gonna this morning we're gonna follow our liturgical calendar. Even in the midst of crisis, it's good to be uh, it's good to be taken out of our out of out of the moment and actually brought into the riches, brought into a uh, a greater um, perspective, a greater order, which is the order of the liturgical calendar. And this morning, in Palm Sunday, we're gonna be focusing on Luke chapter nineteen. Uh, which is known as the triumphal procession, Luke chapter 19. I'm going to begin in verse 29 and read through verses uh, through verse 44. And this morning, uh, I think for me, as I reflect on Palm Sunday, um, there is a there's a complexity to it, and there is a uh, there is an emotion. There's a tremendous amount of emotion uh, swirling in this time and this era of uh, of Israel's history, uh, in the the climax really of Jesus' own ministry. And there is a, there's a with a beauty, but also a tragedy, a deep tragedy to, to this passage. And so, as we as we go, let's let's uh, let's jump in uh, as we consider this uh, this amazing segment. For me, as a child, this passage was always uh, very anticlimactic. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up loving the stories of Jesus, the the miracles of Jesus, the words of Jesus. And yet, this passage for me was always very. Um, very anticlimactic. Very, uh, it, it seemed very underwhelming to me. It's like, couldn't Jesus? How couldn't Jesus have done more than simply ride in on a donkey? Isn't there some way that he could have done something that was more uh, dramatic, uh, more, um, more indicative of his power? And uh, we'll talk about that idea this morning. Um, but as we as we go, uh, as we read, as we uh, look at this, this passage, we'll we'll read it together and then we'll we'll pray together. So hear now the word of the Lord uh, from Luke 19, beginning in verse 29. As Jesus approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, "Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one." Has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the the Mount of Olives, the, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And Jesus said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, 
but now it is hidden, hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask, I ask especially this morning, that you would be present through your word, present, powerful, doing all that you please. Father, would you, would you show us your grace, your glory, your goodness? Father, awaken us, awaken our souls to hear and receive and obey and feed upon your word. Oh, Father, please, may, may, this, may this morning, may the teaching of your word, the preaching of your word, be a balm to our souls. May it convict the comfortable. May it uh, comfort the afflicted. Father, please, this morning, may, may you be pleased to use a weak vessel like me uh, to do mighty things for your people. Um, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at the story, again, I mentioned there's a lot going on here at a lot of different levels, especially from a historical perspective. It's really quite fascinating. So I want to just very begin by laying out what is really the, the context, the setting, the situation, by just asking the question, who are the key places and key persons here? Well, first, as we look at the Palm, this Palm Sunday event, this triumphal procession, we first the first thing we notice is Jesus' final destination. So I want to talk about Jesus. I'm going to lay out in terms of the people and places, Jesus' final destination, Jesus' followers, Jesus' foes, and then finally Jesus' own feelings, his own, his own perspective here. So first, that's just to lay the groundwork. For Jesus' final destination, of course, is Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about the Gospels at all, that this is it. This is Jesus truly his final destination. This is what he's been working to the whole time, is simply arriving finally in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem itself can be, if I were to try to capture the feel, the, the, the sort of the, the character of Jerusalem at this moment, is that Jerusalem is really ready to go on the warpath. They are ready to go on the warpath. As a city, in fact, the whole area of Judea, it is, a, it is a powder keg politically and religiously, especially at the time of the Passover. The Passover is about a week away, and there are pilgrims. Jesus isn't simply walking alone. There are pilgrims. There are the faithful are streaming into Jerusalem, literally from all around of that portion of the world. In fact, the holy city, or Jerusalem, the city of David, as it was called, during the various feasts, especially Passover, would swell to four, five, even six times its size. In fact, Jesus himself, if you'll notice later, he doesn't actually stay in Jerusalem, mostly because it was so hard to find a place to stay, because everyone, all the faithful, were, were descending upon Jerusalem, seeking to participate in the Passover. And so it was even more of a powder keg, even more explosive, even more the sense of unrest and unease that was true again politically but also religiously the two coming together the city was the city was full of really of three three different dynamics three different persons three different uh sections that were all really at odds with each other the first were the the first were the poor 
The first one, the, the overwhelming majority of people living in Jerusalem, where they were tenant farmers, they were barely scraping by. And then after the farmers, after the, these, these, the, the poor who were, who were really taxed very heavily, you had the, 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 the priestly, uh, the, the priestly aristocrats. In that day, the temple was the center, of course, the center of Jerusalem, and it was the priesthood who had allied themselves with Rome and who were considered by most of the, the, the poor, most of the people within Jerusalem as complete sellouts. So you had the poor, you had the priests, and of course you had the political leadership was, which was under the, the famous Roman governor named Pilate. And Pilate was known for his incompetence, for the ways that he would often seek to stir up and get under the skin of both the priests and the people. He was incredibly incompetent as a leader. And between the, among the three of these factions, the people who were overwhelmingly poor, the priests who were the, the sellouts who had aligned themselves and, and legitimized their way of life through, through uh, the Jewish religion, and Pilate, as part of the political leadership, there, were, there was a terrible relationship among them. And again, the people as a whole were ready to go in the war path. In fact, as Jesus would have been riding in on a colt, Pilate himself, probably that very same day or that same weekend, would also have been riding in on his, through his procession coming in from the coast of the Mediterranean, present for the Passover, not for any religious reasons, but present for precisely what I was saying, that Jerusalem is a city, Judea as a, as a region, it was ready to go on the warpath. And, 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 and uh, Pilate, and he would have brought an, an additional garrison or garrisons of, of, of Roman soldiers with him simply to keep things uh, in order. So again, you've, you, have a, you have an area of poverty, an area of, of the poor, the, of the people. You have the priests who themselves were incredibly corrupt. And then you have the political leadership uh, embodied in Pilate. So first, you have a final destination that we could describe as ready to go on the warpath. So after this final destination, you have Jesus' own followers and the fellow pilgrims who are coming to Jerusalem. And we could, we could kind of capture them in a single word. We could say that they were wired. They're just wired. They are ecstatic. They're enthusiastic. They are, um, at least for the moment, they are enthusiastic. They are lost, if you will, in, a, in, in, in an appropriate but really a naive acclamation of Jesus as Israel's Messiah. Not merely a king, but the king, the one who is to come. The disciples, if you will, are, um, are like kids who've had too much sugar, right? They've had too much. You've imagine a party of some sort. They, they're like those who are just they're, they're wired. So again, you have Jerusalem that's ready to go on the warpath. You have Jesus' followers who are wired. And then you have Jesus' foes. And Jesus' foes are, to say the least, they are worried. In fact, you see it in our, our passage where in verse 39, it says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And this isn't just merely theological agreement, or disagreement. They understood that Jesus' actions, as we'll see here in a minute, of riding in on a colt or on a donkey, that there was something politically charged and subversive. And they understood that if Jesus took that too far, the Romans would immediately notice, and, and the outcome could be violent. In fact, it could be devastating for the entire city. Okay, so they are, they are worse. So if the final destination is on the warpath, if Jesus' followers are wired, 
if uh, Jesus' foes are worried, of course, that leads us to, um, to Jesus himself. And let me just say to the followers, I'm mean, sorry, of Jesus' foes, there's a, there's a real complexity, and I'll, I'll go into this in detail here. But Jesus' foes, especially his Jewish foes, were, were, were twofold in nature. That you had the Pharisees, and then you had the Sadducees. And the Pharisees, they, they were the separatists. They're the separatists. They're, 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 they're basically those who, who want God's people to be separate from Rome. They look around the world, they look around and they say, you know what, we need to be more separate, more faithful. And they did not like Jesus because Jesus was not a separatist. In fact, Jesus was a problem precisely because he was hanging around with all the wrong people. And we'll see that more in a second. So for the Pharisees, so you can remember that the Pharisees are separatists. The Pharisees always wanted to be far from the world. Pharisee, far from the world. And then, uh, and then only the Pharisees, though, as Jesus foes, you had also the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, the Pharisees were the separatists. The Sadducees were the sellouts. They were the sellouts. Sadducees were overwhelming those in control of the priesthood. They controlled the temple. They were the aristocrats. They were the elite. So if you can imagine, the Sadducees are, in a sense, the people pleasers. They are trying to keep the status quo as much as possible. Okay, so we've got Jesus' foes who are worried. So regardless of their Pharisees or Sadducees, they're worried about what might happen here. So again, just to recap, Jesus' final destination, Jerusalem, is ready to go on the warpath. Jesus' followers are wired, and they're, they're a little bit out of touch with reality, but for the moment, they're wired. Jesus' own foes are worried. But what about Jesus himself? What's his focus, or what's, what's he feeling? Is he ready to go on the warpath? You know, think about it. I mean, if you were living in Jesus' day, if you were living, if you were a, a poor person, you would be fit to be tied with the politics you would be just overwhelmed, but with just anger, fury, by how corrupt the politicians of Jesus' day were. And yet Jesus, not that he was insensitive to that, or that he was unaware of that, but that was not his focus. He was not ready to go in the warpath. And nor was he like his followers, nor was he sort of wired and sort of ecstatic and just sort of removed from the situation, sort of off in, in just sort of the shouting and, 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 and calling out. And there was something very appropriate to that, but there was something also very naive, very unrealistic, very just sort of detached. Jesus isn't detached here. He's not wired. But even more interestingly, unlike his foes, Jesus is not worried. He's not worried. He's not wondering what's going to happen. In fact, what Jesus, what makes him different from everyone else, Jesus is feeling, we see it here in his passage, there's a number of different things he's feeling, but the, the thing I want you to see perhaps first and foremost is that Jesus is not wired, he's not worried. Actually, Jesus is weeping. He's weeping. And we see that in the text at the side of Jerusalem, he's overcome with emotion. He's overcome. He sees the city, that city that will murder him, the city that will destroy him, the city that really will want nothing to do with him. And he weeps. And his weeping, understand, his weeping isn't mere disappointment. It's not sentimentality. Elsewhere in Luke, the same verb that Jesus that used to describe Jesus weeping, and the same verb is used to describe a widow 
who's grieving the death of her only son. It's in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is weeping like a widow, grieving the death of her only son. Later in chapter 8, there's a, there are family members grieving the death of their 12-year-old daughter. Chapter 8, verse 52, same again, the same verb. Jesus is weeping the loss of a loved one. He's deeply concerned. So we, as we look at all the complexity of what's going on here, we see Jesus' final destination, ready to go on the warpath, the anger, the sense of injustice, the oppression. We see Jesus' followers just sort of wired, sort of ecstatic. We see Jesus' foes incredibly worried about what might happen. But we see Jesus himself weeping. He's weeping. Well, what's going on? Well, I want to talk just, I want to take it very briefly and just walk through this passage. And I want to talk about the hiddenness. What is going on that Jesus is weeping here? What, what is it that draws out this character of Jesus as one who is weeping, as one who is, who's, whose heart is broken at the sight of a city that is so hostile to him? Let me just say, so Palm Sunday is a day, I want to just talk about the idea of hiddenness. I want to say first and foremost that Palm Sunday was a day, of, uh, uh, was a day for hidden people. It's a day for hidden people. You know, hidden among the crowds, as, hidden among Jesus' followers, were some pretty interesting people. And in fact, if we go back and look in chapter 18 and 19, we, we, we see that amongst this crowd, there were some really interesting people. For example, uh, in Luke chapter 18, if you, you don't have to turn there, if you wanted, you can follow along, but in Luke chapter 18, we see that Jesus several times has told his disciples that he will be going to Jerusalem, and there he will be rejected, and there he will be crucified, uh, and, and on the third day will rise from the, from, the, from the dead. And so from among his followers, certainly the, among the hidden, among these hidden crowds, are persons who are completely clueless. They're followers of Jesus. In fact, if you look in chapter 18, verse 31, we see this. It says, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit upon him. They will flog him and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. Now, when you hear verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what he was talking about. So among Jesus' crowds, see, the Palm Sunday is a day of hidden people, a people hidden among the followers who, they're clueless. They don't understand what's going on. Jesus has simply told them straight out, here's what's happening, and they are clueless. And Jesus is, he's in a sense okay with that. He understands that they don't understand what's going on. They don't understand his purposes. They don't understand why he's doing what he's doing. So among the crowds are first hidden the clueless people. But also among the crowds, this is even more interesting in some ways, are the, among the hidden people are the complicated or the inconvenient. Shortly after that, in chapter 18, verse 35, we see, we see this. We see this incredible story of a blind beggar. In verse 35, it says that Jesus approached Jericho. Again, as he's, he's making his way down, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, well, Jesus is, 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 is coming by. And then he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
Now listen to this. Listen to this. Verse 39 of chapter 18. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. Now that's, again, these are Jesus' followers. These are those who are going before Jesus. And, and, and they're saying, look, Jesus doesn't have time for you. We're, we're actually moving to Jerusalem. We're on our way. We're on a pilgrimage and you're blind. You're in the way. Jesus is a busy guy. But of course, he calls undeterred. The man shouts out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 40, Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus. Do you see that? So he's among the followers. He's among the crowd. And he praised God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. So here we see that hidden in the crowds are actually persons who are completely clueless. And here are actually overwhelmingly inconvenient. They're costly. They're they're complicated. But Jesus has time for them. Jesus will stop. And he will include, and he will ask, what is it that you want? It's beautiful that Palm Sunday is a day for hidden people. But it's the hidden people who are not only clueless, not only inconvenient or complicated, but people who are corrupt. Look at look what we see here in chapter, beginning of chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus enters into Jericho, and he has this interaction with a certain tax collector. Now, again, I, I, what I just mentioned earlier about, about Jerusalem and Judea being an area of inc- uh, where, where, the, where the people, the priests, and the political leadership, leadership are all at odds so that, 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 the, that really Jerusalem, the whole Jude area of Judea, they're ready to go on the war path. And the persons who were truly the sellouts among that whole dynamic were the, 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 the tax collectors. And we see Jesus here stopping, acknowledging this, 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 this short uh, tax collector, chief tax collector named Zacchaeus. And he says to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this. Again, these are all Jesus' followers. Uh, Jesus, you know, those who want to be seen with Jesus, those who want to be recognized or affiliated or associated with Jesus. They began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said said to the Lord, Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus, of course, receives him with joy, saying that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So among, hidden in these crowds, are, are the clueless, Jesus' own disciples, the twelve, who really don't understand what's going on. Among these, hidden among the crowds are, is someone like this blind man who apparently no one seemed to have time for, except for Jesus. And hidden among the crowds are finally this, this particular this man, this Zacchaeus, who apparently isn't too corrupt, isn't too much of part of the problem, that Jesus actually welcomes him, includes him, calls him by name, associates with him. Those are the kinds of persons that really Palm Sunday is all about. I don't know where you are. Maybe you, 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 you're new to Christianity. Maybe you're unfamiliar with Christianity. You're, you're, 
you're kind of clueless. You think, I don't, I don't know really what this is all about, but I want more. Palm Sunday is for you. Remember, you think, you know, I'm just so inconvenient. I'm just too costly. I'm too much trouble. I'm too much work. Palm Sunday is for you. Or maybe you think, I, I, you know, I've done too much. I've done too much wrong in my life. I'm too corrupt. I've been told by other religious people, other people who call themselves Christians, that I'm not welcome. Palm Sunday is a day for you. So first, Palm Sunday is a day for hidden people. Jesus on Palm Sunday is one who is here for the hidden people. But Palm Sunday is secondly, it's secondly a day not only of, for hidden people, it's a day of hidden plans. It's a day of hidden plans. You know, again, you may wonder as you read this, as, you read, as I read through it, what is going on with this colt? What is going on with this donkey? Right? It takes up, actually it takes up six, six verses, six or seven verses in the story. And even as a kid, I thought, what is the deal here that Jesus says, look, here's this, why, why, why this, why not just, just, okay, Jesus got a donkey and then he got on top of it. Why does it go in this excru- excruciating detail of telling his disciples, hey, look, go on in, find this colt. If anyone says, you know, and, and it's just, and it's kind of painful. The donkey, the, the, the colt is mentioned at least six or seven times. Well, what's going on here is that Jesus is fulfilling hidden plans. What may seem like political chaos, economic oppression, what may seem so um, completely out of order, so completely messy, is actually for Jesus the fulfillment of hidden plans. Clearly implicit, what Jesus, even Jesus' own followers picked up on, and even despite a lot of their cluelessness, they understood the Old Testament scriptures. In the, in, the, in, the, in the prophecy of Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9, we read these words, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That Jesus understands that he is fulfilling hidden plans. He is completing hidden plans. He's fulfilling hidden promises, forgotten promises. But he is doing what is all part of the plan. And as a child, this grabbed me. It really, to me, it's the most staggering thing. If, if you can really, if you can get your arms around this, you have understood Christianity. That God, in his might, in his power, in his shrewdness, that he is actually working all things, even down to the detail, for his purposes, for his plans. And what seems to be chaos for us, what seems to be confusion for us, is actually all part of, all part of the plan. For the Old Testament is at pains to talk about the ways in which God sends famine, sends plague, he sends, uh, he sends life, he's the Lord of life, he's the Lord of death. Even the lot, the casting of the lot, the casting of the dice, is in his hands. And we see here this beautiful, this beautiful expression that Palm Sunday is a day of hidden plans. And it's not only a, a time of hidden plans, but third, it's, a, it's related to this. It's, it's a day of hidden power, 
Again, you notice the details of the cold, how Jesus seems, he knows exactly what to do. He grabs two of his disciples, sends them straight ahead, says, look, as you enter, you're going to find a colt, and it's going to be tied up. And what I want you to do is tie it up, and, when, when, and then he has this provision for the owners that makes sense. And so, but, but somehow, some way, in, in ways that we can't begin to understand, and you would think when the owners say, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples say, because the Lord needs it, they would go, what in the world are you talking about? But clearly there's a hidden power at work. That behind the machinations of men, behind all the corruption, there is a God who is working his purposes all through it. In a way that this is, and this to me is I think one of the most striking things about Jesus in this whole passage is that yes, that Jesus is weeping, and you might want to get to that, but there is a nonchalance to Jesus. There is a, Jesus here in this passage is calm, cool, and collected. And you may wonder, either, either Jesus is off his rocker, that he just doesn't begin to understand the forces of play that are against him. I mean, literally, he's in a, his, his, his grand strategy is to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Are you kidding me? There's an insanity, there's a foolishness, there's a stupidity. There's something very pathetic about that. And yet Jesus is just, again, nonchalant, relaxed, calm, cool, and collected. There's a hidden power at work here that is truly, that should just give us pause. How can he be so calm? How can he be so cool and collected? Well, several times in this passage, Luke also mentions the the, the Mount of Olives. And again, in Zechariah, the Mount of Olives, if you read chapters uh, 9, 10, 11, and 12 uh, of, of, the, of the prophecy of Zechariah, the Mount of Olives play this role within the future of God's people that is a role of judgment. And in fact, in, min, uh, uh, in the midst of this prophecy about a king coming peacefully, humbly, who will bring peace to the nations, amidst that prophecy is a prophecy of a God who will judge, who sees and who knows and who will pay back. And I think for Jesus, that provides all the comfort that he needs. Jesus is so certain of God's future judgment. He's so certain of God's power. He's so so convinced that every detail is working out exactly according to plan that he has this amazingly relaxed stance. In a time of just overwhelming crisis, of just, again, when Jerusalem is a powder keg, when Jerusalem is ready to go on the war path, when there seems so much uncertainty, Jesus is riding along on a colt with a smirk on his face. What does he know that you and I don't? Why is he so calm, so cool, collected? Because Palm Sunday is a day of hidden plans. It's a day of hidden power. It's a power that is different from the power of the corrupt priests. It's a power that's different from the political leadership of Pilate. It's a power the world has never seen. It's the power of a scandalous welcome. That Jesus was friends with all the wrong people. It's the power of a new wisdom. That Jesus actually knew how to live life to the full. He knew what was important. He knew what was insignificant. He understood it was the power of a new way. A different kind 
of power. Uh, just um, just this week, my family uh, watched uh, an, a film that we've seen uh, quite a few times. It's a it's one of the most brilliant animated films I've ever seen. Most of you are, for, are probably familiar with the movie The Incredibles. It's a phenomenal animated film by by Pixar, directed by a guy named uh, Brad Bird. Well, long before The Incredibles, which is an amazing movie, the very first film that Brad Bird directed was called The Iron Giant. The Iron Giant. And it is a spectacular movie about a boy and this iron giant that falls from the sky. And the context is, it happens in the late 1950s. It's sort of the, 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 the culmination or the, the, really the, um, the, 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 one of the, the um, greatest moments or the, the most, uh, the height of the crisis of the Cold War. Let me say it that way. It's the, really the height of the crisis of the Cold War. And you have this iron giant that falls from the sky. We don't really know where he's coming from, but this boy and this iron giant become fast friends. And this giant is like 100 feet tall. And this boy basically, he, 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 he befriends this giant and teaches the giant about uh, kindness, about uh, death, about gentleness, about love. And he, he convinces the giant that he is able to use his power only for good. And what's so amazing about the story is that, of course, the whole, the whole rest of the city, the whole rest of America, the, the military-industrial complex, they all think that the Iron Giant is there to destroy, is there to, to, is a threat. And it's only the boy who understands that here is one who is powerful, who will use his power to save and to rescue, and yet no one understands. Everyone thinks that this iron giant is the enemy. And it's, it's just an astonishing picture, really, of Jesus as one who comes with such power, but a power of a different kind, a power to heal, a power to love, a power to sacrifice, a power to give without end. And it's precisely that power that is, is leading to a whole new period, a whole new era of history. So again, Palm Sunday, it's a day for hidden people, the day of hidden plans and of a hidden power. But most soberly, Palm Sunday is a day hidden from a proud people. And this is what leads Jesus to weep. Look in verse 41. It says, As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, If you... Even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. And he goes on to describe the inevitable destruction of the people of faith, the people of faith of his day. This is what is so scary, what is so truly sobering that Palm Sunday is a day of hiddenness. Yes, of hidden people. That Jesus is welcoming those who are clueless. He's welcoming those who are, are just truly um, inconvenient. He's welcoming those who are truly corrupt, who align themselves with him. And see, they are able to see, even the blind man was able to see Jesus' hidden plans, his hidden power. But you know what? There were so many in Jerusalem who were proud. They were proud. They did not want in any way to be helped by Jesus. They saw Jesus as a threat. 
to the status quo, a threat to, to the kind of life they wanted to live. And these aren't the pagans. These aren't the outsiders. These are God's people. And that Jesus would respond with tears, that he would respond with weeping. I mean, doesn't that just say it all? It speaks of his love. But it speaks of a love that is unrequited, a, a love that, that no one wants, a love that, that, that simply is, is, is falls on deaf ears. Gang, you and I, as the people of God in name, have the capacity in our pride to reject Jesus. We have the capacity to pay lip service to the one who comes and is wisdom, who is life, who is peace. See, we're so convinced we know what's best for us. That's what Jesus says here. He says, if you, he says, if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. And here, peace isn't simply some sort of inner peace. It's not just some sort of calm. Here, peace has to do with flourishing, human flourishing, thriving. It has to do with what is best for us. And Jesus has the gall to come to us and say, you don't know what's best for you. You need to surrender. You need me to lead you. You need me to be your Lord. You need me to take over your life. And you and I and our pride, we can so often fold our arms and say, hmm. Or we can just very passively smile and honor him with our lips when our hearts are far from him. A pastor, a friend of mine, recently shared with me about a friend of his who, uh, who very sadly uh, re, um, was uh, in, a, in a very difficult struggle with cancer. He, he was diagnosed with cancer, and he realized uh, that the, the, the doctors were, were basically, the doctors came to him and said, look, we, we really can treat this. Almost certainly, we have a treatment plan that if you follow it, you will recover. And for reasons that I don't fully understand, the man decided that he would refuse the treatment and said that he would try to do an alternate form of just recovery, whatever it might be, but he refused the treatment. And it was despite the family, friends, this pastor himself pleading with him to actually receive the treatment humble yourself and go in there and in the name of, of love of your family, your wife and your children, go in and receive the treatment. And he refused to do it. And you and I may stop and think, that is the most ridiculous. Who in the world would ever refuse? That? Whoever would refuse that kind of treatment? We know what? You and I do that spiritually all the time. We pretend like we're fine. You and I are like, we can be like patients who go to visit their doctor. We wait in, we wait in, the, patient's, in, 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 the, in the waiting room. And when the nurse comes out and calls us to go in, we just stay out in the waiting room. And then we slip out the door. We don't want to be corrected. We don't want to have our lives exposed. We don't want to have to work on things that really are close to the, very close to the heart of who we are. And Jesus, in response to that, as he sees the people of God so proud, so unwilling to receive help, he weeps. 
So let me just, let me conclude with this. I want you to see both, both the hidden power, the hidden plans that, that Jesus has, the nonchalance, the confidence that he has that he will take with him all the way through Passion Week. All the way, even as far as Good Friday, where, where, where he says, he looks at Peter, and, and Peter, you know, cu- Peter cuts off the ear of the, uh, of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus very nonchalantly picks it up, puts it back, on, heals the man's ear, turns to Peter and says, don't you realize? He says, put back your sword. Don't you realize everything is going according to plan? Don't you realize that I could not even now calm on by my father and he would send 12 legions of angels but how would the scriptures be fulfilled? So Palm Sunday confronts us. Do I want to be among the hidden of the crowds? Am I actually quite clueless? Am I actually tremendously inconvenient? Am I not actually very corrupt? And if so, you are part of the crowd. You are among Jesus' followers. To admit and to say, Jesus, I don't understand, but I'm going to follow you. I don't, it doesn't make sense to me, I'm so clueless. Or Jesus, I am corrupt, more corrupt than I ever thought I was, but I'm here to follow. Will we walk, will we, will we bow before Jesus' hidden plans? Even when we can't see them ourselves. I don't know what God is up to in the midst of this crisis. I don't know what God is up to in my life in various ways, but I know that he's at work. Hidden plans with a hidden power. A power that is at work in ways that are different from the ways of the power of this world. The power of politicians, the power of the press. Jesus has a power of grace, of wisdom, of love. Will we enter into those hidden plans and purposes? Will we enter in and receive and ask him for the power to change us? Or will we remain proud? Stubborn, pretending like there's nothing wrong. Will we stay? Will Jesus? Will there will come a day when all that is beautiful, all that is truly wise, all that is truly good for us, will be hidden from our eyes, and we will hear Jesus weeping. Let us pray together, Heavenly Father. How sobering! What a sobering message, Father, uh, to think that we can be the people of God in name only. And Father, all of us know, we know, we've seen persons who, who profess faith in you, whose lives are so contradictory, whose lives truly are hypocritical, and we, we, we hate it, we loathe it. And yet, Father, how blind I am, how, far, how much I pretend that I am different. Jesus, we know, Father, we know, Holy Spirit, we know that you hate hypocrisy and that there will come another day in which you will judge the living and the dead, in which you will expose all that is real, all that is true. When so many of those who in name say, Lord, did I not do perform miracles? Lord, have I not done this? Did I do not and call you Lord and yet do not do what you say? They will be exposed, thrown out into a place of darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh Lord Jesus, would you sober us? Would you awaken us? 
Would you give us your love? Would you be that refuge and strength, that stronghold? Would you be our hope, especially in this time? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.